0: Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of The Show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode.
1: Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger.
0: And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why the head of the agency tasked with finding new sources of water is displeased with the governor's budget proposal.
1: And an ASU professor is out with a new memoir about growing up in a strict Rastafari household in Jamaica.
0: But first, University of Arizona Athletic Director Dave Heakey is out. The school has announced a, quote, transition in leadership in the athletic department. The U of A has been mired in a financial crisis for a couple of months, and this department has played prominently in the fallout from it. Hickey had been the wild with the Wildcats for seven years after coming from central Michigan. His departure comes shortly after the university named a new head football coach and just before it leaves the Pac-12 conference for the Big 12. With me now to talk more about this is Ellie Wolf, who covers higher education for the Arizona Daily Star. Good morning, Ellie.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: Doing all right. So, like, was this a surprise? Did, did folks see this coming?
2: This was a surprise. Um, you know, it was pretty sudden, especially right after the um, hiring of the new head football coach, Brett Brennan. Um, I know our sports reporting team at the Arizona Daily Star is excellent and has incredible sources and always has a good scoop. And I believe they only knew about this about an hour before the news broke.
1: Hmm.
0: So what is the university saying about why Hiki is leaving?
2: You know, right now, they're only giving kind of official positive language, right? They're not sharing a lot. But here's what we do know, is that um, the University of Arizona is currently trying to bounce back from a financial crisis. Um, The university... had a financial miscalculation that they revealed earlier this fall of about $240 million. And, um, you know, through meetings with uh, the faculty senate, university president Robert Robbins has repeatedly stated that the university has loaned the athletics department a total of about $86 million in the past couple years. So um, it's not necessarily super surprising that there is kind of a change in leadership in the athletics department, but the timing is definitely interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm curious, especially about the timing. I mentioned, and and you also mentioned, this coming just a few days after the new head football coach was announced. And of course, the U of A and ASU will be leaving the Pac-12 to join the Big 12. Two pretty big transitional events, and now a third one in terms of looking for a new athletic director.
2: Mm -hmm. And this is... You know, one specific instance in the athletic department, but this has happened many times in the university. If you look at the senior leadership of the university, there's an interim provost, there's an interim CFO, there's an interim vice president of research. So it's not necessarily new that the university has all of these interim positions and is now launching yet another search.
0: What are folks sort of in the U of A community saying about this? Obviously the, the financial crisis, as you referenced, has been a really big deal. Throughout the school, the athletic department has played a played a pretty big role in that. Like what are folks saying about the fact that the university is essentially getting rid of its athletic director now?
2: Well, there are a couple interesting kind of sects of um, the UA community, right? So the Faculty Senate for months has been um, aggressive about the issue of athletics. And there are multiple faculty senators that have said, you know, sell off the entire athletics department. You should be firing people in athletics. We know that Robbins spoke to the Faculty Senate about a month ago and said there will 100% be layoffs in athletics um, and then didn't mention that at all in his financial action plan he gave to the Arizona Board of Regents on December 13th. Um, but you also have a Tucson community that is um, completely enamored with the University of Arizona Athletics. And so a lot of our readers are really surprised by this change. You know, they feel a certain amount of ownership um, and investment in the athletics program here.
0: Right. So you mentioned the Board of Regents in terms of uh, President Robbins giving his his action plan. There's also a meeting coming up in just a couple of days. Uh, is, is the financial situation, is is Hickey's uh, departure scheduled to come up at that?
2: So we're really not sure at this point. Um, the meeting is on Thursday. It'll be live streamed. Um, And we know that, or our sources have told us, that um, a lot of the meeting that is public will be um, talking about different athletic coaches' contracts. So they need, the Arizona Board of Regents need to approve the new contract of new uh, University of Arizona head football coach, Brent Brennan. Um, There was also talk about um, the Regents deciding about an extension to um arizona basketball coach men's basketball coach tommy Br- tommy lloyd um but we're we are not sure if that will be on there um if there is talk of athletics and talk of the university of arizona you know i don't see how the elephant in the room is not addressed of yeah. Key. but we'll have to see
0: is anybody saying that there's a chance that the regents might not approve the new football coach's contract
2: we don't see that as being a possible option. You know, um, sources inside the Regents are pretty happy with the choice of uh new head coach, Brennan and, um, You know, people have spoken to me about how he is one of the lowest paid coaches in the new league, um, which, you know, the UA is obviously trying to get as much bang for its buck amidst all of this, all of these financial issues. So I don't anticipate the regents rejecting that contract. But um, with everything going on at the university, you know, you never know.
0: Right. Absolutely. All right. That is Ellie Wolf, who covers higher education for the Arizona Daily Star. Ellie, thanks as always. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for supporting our local journalism.
0: The head of a state agency that's looking for new water sources for Arizona is unhappy with the governor's budget proposal. Two years ago, then-Governor Doug Ducey and state lawmakers agreed to invest a billion dollars in a desalination plant, among other projects, to augment Arizona's water supply. The money was to be allocated over three years. But last year's budget included roughly half of the $333 million expected for the Water Infrastructure Finance Authority, or WIFA. And Governor Katie Hobbs has proposed just $33 million for the agency in her plan for the upcoming fiscal year. All of that has Chuck Podolak concerned. He's WIFA's director and has been speaking out about the need to fully fund his decades-old agency. He stopped by the studio recently to talk about this, and we started with where the authority is in the area of trying to find new sources of water for the state
3: yeah we are we are looking and we're looking at all options and I think that's what has been the really the theme of the last year is moving ahead in a in a methodic way to make sure that we're we're looking for answers that can help support customer need in Arizona. And we're doing that in a way that makes the most sense for Arizona. So desalination
0: was obviously sort of the, the big headline uh, that a lot of people know about. But are there other areas of augmentation that you're also looking at?
3: Yeah, absolutely. There was uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, in 2022 about the possibility of doing a desalination project in Mexico and bringing water into the state. And that's one option that has been looked at in Arizona and frankly throughout the West for quite a long time, back in 2019, the governor there was a governor's group that published a report that looked at the whole menu of, of options for augmentation. When augmentation really – I think of that as how do you grow the pie? How do you make the pie of water in Arizona bigger? Um, bringing water in from ocean in California, doing advanced reuse in California and trading some water, bringing water in from Mexico. People have talked about looking to the Missouri, the Mississippi at excess floodwaters and bringing that in. All complicated options, all uh, very difficult to bring to fruition, but all things that, that in our mind are still on the table. So as you say, those are all kind of complicated, difficult things to do, but are some easier to do than others? Probably. Everything really has its pros and cons. You know, it, it doing projects across the border, across an international border, may be more complicated than across a state border. Hmm. Doing projects across multiple states may be harder than a, a single state the water that we would bring into Arizona all has to come from quite a distance. And so how do you do that? Do you physically move it in a pipeline? There are some really cool ways to do like exchanges or trades. Take some of Colorado, or California's Colorado River water in exchange for giving them some water. So yeah, there's 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 pluses and minuses. And I think what, what we're at the stage of doing it right now in WIF is rather than using our, our instinct or our gut feel is to say, okay, how do you do the – how do you really analyze these? How do you look at the pros and cons, what's the best. And that that's what we're in the process of doing right now.
0: Does anything seem to be sort of, pardon the pun, floating to the top
3: at this point in terms of most feasible and also maybe the most cost efficient? Not right now. I think you know that you do have some people with vested interest. You have some people that have strong feelings about what they think should happen, who would advocate for some things to float to the top. But we really haven't gone in far enough to say with integrity and with with rigor that we think this is the best option. That's where we're still keeping a very open mind right now.
4: And it seems
0: as though when you talk about potential complications, you have sort of the the political issue in terms of international or interstate kinds of things, but also then the technical, like how do you get the water? How do you treat the water if that's something you're doing? Do those both have equal difficulty or, or are there some options that maybe are –
3: Hard to do politically, but technically would be easier to do, or vice versa. I would say the challenges that keep me awake are more on the how do you get things permitted? How do you get the political and the diplomatic will to make these things happen? We know how we engineering uh, scientists know how to how to clean water. We know how to take things out of a water and reuse water. We know how to take salt out of a water and, and use seawater. So it's less of an engineering. Pr- and we know how to move water through pipes. Mm-hmm. The engineering of it is is less daunting than how do you get the buy-in from a whole bunch of different areas and jurisdictions to make something like that happen. When you talk about
0: buy-in, mm-hmm. there's also been a lot of talk about increased conservation in terms okay. of uh, both agriculture and sort of city use and homeowner use. Where are we on that? And how does that sort of fit into the
3: overall water picture here? Overall, we're doing good on conservation. We have there's been a real focus on water in Arizona for the last few years and I think there, there's a sense in some people's mind that now we need to start doing conservation and what gets lost is there's been incredible conservation going on in the agricultural space, in the in the cities for, for decades in Arizona, which isn't to say that we don't have more room to go sure. and that's one thing that we've been doing while we've been looking at this augmentation and focusing on that part of our mission. We also have a mission to advance conservation in the state. We have $200 million uh, to distribute over the, over the course of a year period to fund um, really cool, innovative projects that save water in Arizona. And, and we're well uh, in, in the process of putting those, that money to work. So let me ask you about money because
0: yeah. you've been pretty critical of the governor's proposed budget um, in which she set aside about 30 or so some odd million dollars, which is far less than what the agency was hoping and, and maybe yeah. even expecting to get this year. Let's say that that is or something close to it is what comes out of the final budget. What does that mean for WIFA?
3: It means it may, it may make it harder and I think that's that's what we're trying to convey uh, both to the, the governor and to the legislators is in this very difficult time. The, the state revenues are are, uh, the, are in a, a tough spot and our message is don't forget about water. Don't back off on our long-term commitment to, to go find new supplies. and So what we want to do is to make sure that through all the compromises that will be required down at the Capitol, that – people don't question our commitment to this. Customers of this potential new project don't lose faith that it can happen. People that Partners that we will work with in the private sector don't lose faith that the state of Arizona uh, is a good partner on this. And that's what we're really trying to get interjected in the conversation. Do you have the sense that that is starting to happen, that potential
0: customers or other private entities that the state might be working with are starting to question Arizona's commitment?
3: Yes, I think it is. We um, In 2022, there was a commitment by the state of Arizona to not only stand WIFA up with these new authorities, but to um, back that up with a billion dollars. Um, and that was paid in three installments. The first year, it was fully paid. The second year, some of that money was – about half of that money uh, was diverted for other water projects. And that started to raise some questions about, well, are you a good partner? How much How much does WIFA have? How much does the state of Arizona have to bring to a partnership like this? Um, and I think that questioning continues as we work through what, whatever happens this year. If WIFA
0: ultimately gets the billion dollars, is that enough, for example, to, to build a desalination plant and, and to operate it for some amount of time?
3: No, it's not. And that that really goes to the core of why we need to get good partners. You know, people have kicked around ideas and, and you know, we've seen inflation and, and just the cost of building things go up. But, you know, maybe we're talking a 5 $10, 15000000000 billion kind of project. The state can bring some money to the table, but really we're looking for private partners uh, to bring money to the table. And for them to know that they have a partner, we have to be serious. They have to know that we're in this for the long haul. How big of a role does the actual
0: money play in that? I mean, I I would imagine that anybody who is in the water arena knows that Arizona is in the situation it's in and is looking at augmentation. So given that – how significant is it, maybe, if the
3: amount of money that that you thought you would be getting isn't there relative to everything else? So, so that's a great point, and I think it it may be less the final dollar amount and more the security of it. So if we knew for sure that you know you had X amount of money, that's what we bring to the table with a partner. When that X amount of money is up in the air, I think it that's that's the real difficult part. What have you heard from either the
0: governor's office or from other sort of in the water community here in Arizona about the fact that you are speaking up about this and, in some cases, being a little bit critical of what the governor is proposing here?
3: Well, we all have different roles. Um, you know, the governor, the the legislators have a tough task of balancing a lot of uh, a lot of competing interests. Um, I have a different role. My role is is tasked by by the statutes, by the Arizona laws that have set up WIFA is to make this program work. And so what we're trying to do is to say, this is what you need to consider if you want this program to work. And, that, and that's what we're doing. Sure. All right. That is Chuck Podolak, Executive Director of the
0: Water Infrastructure Finance Authority, otherwise known as WIFA. Chuck, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger.
0: And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, people may think of Rastafari as something that defines Jamaica, but only a small population of Jamaicans were part of the movement.
1: We were the
5: only Rasta children at the beachside. Like wherever we went, we were teased, pointed at. We were questioned. Mm. We were like curiosities.
0: We'll hear from an ASU creative writing professor who grew up in a Rastafari household.
1: But first, you've probably seen countless headlines about the unprecedented numbers of migrants arriving at our southern border in the last year. We saw a record high in fiscal year 2023, 2.5 million encounters of migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border. But our next guest says just who is arriving there and how they're coming has also changed significantly. And it has a lot to do with the Biden administration's shifting policies. Ariel Ruiz Soto is a senior policy analyst with the Nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute. And in a new report, he and his fellow researchers found that after the end of the controversial immigration policy known as Title 42... More migrants than ever before who are reaching the U.S. are now coming to ports of entry, often with appointments via the CBP1 app or through a parole program. In fact, Ruiz Soto told me it's this increase in people coming to ports of entry, attempting to come here legally, that's caused these record numbers we're seeing. Here is our conversation, beginning with where many migrants are now coming from.
6: What has been really fascinating to see in the last few years at the us mexico border is how important has been the change about the nationalities of migrants arriving to the us mexico border. We've seen that after the pandemic, there's been a hemispheric migration flow coming from places as far as Venezuela, but also Ecuador and others outside of the hemisphere, including India, Turkey, and more recently China. And because these flows are also coming from farther away, they also require additional assistance when they come to the U.S.-Mexico border, which presents significant challenges for the U.S. Border Patrol. Right. One of them is language, but more primarily, at least in the processing stage of their cases, is understanding how to provide accommodations with them for detention space, shelter, and or release them into the United States, given that they cannot be detained for a significant amount of time.
1: Okay, so your report talks about those shifts to begin with, but also documents how how much of this is really policy driven, like we saw the end of Title 42 and the Biden administration implementing an array of policies at a sort of carrot and stick approach they're trying to take, as you call it. So describe that shift for us, first of all, the, the major changes in policy we saw very recently.
6: Sure. So leading to the end of Title 42, the Biden administration took a different stance in how it Sees managing not just irregular migration at the U.S.-Mexico border, but also opening new pathways for migration. A key component after the Title 42 was to implement what became known as the circumvent of lawful pathways rule. That means that migrants who arrive today at the U.S.-Mexico border have to prove that they either applied for asylum in another country and didn't receive it, or that they are eligible for another exemption to receive asylum in the United States. Mm-hmm. That means that most people who enter or seek to enter the United States irregularly will not directly qualify for asylum in the beginning process. In practice, this plays differently because of the lack of resources. USCIS officers, for example, do not have enough capacity to interview every migrant that it comes to the U.S. Mexico border right away, right. and therefore means that they have to be detained for a longer time. Mm-hmm. But quickly here, it's important to think, too, as well as how migration two ports of entry has changed under CVP1 application, which is a scheduling tool that the Border Patrol uses and OFO use to try to have migrants arrive at ports of entry with their information already previously included so that they can then be screened and if deemed eligible, be allowed into the country through the port and then proceed with a usually two year parole document that allows them to work or to apply for work. And then that is a very different process than what happens between ports of entry. So the Biden administration, really what they did is they began to separate how the U.S. law and U.S. agencies treat migrants who come between ports of entry versus Mm -hmm. those who come at ports of entry.
1: Right. So a big piece of this massive increase we hear so much about at the southern border of people arriving at the border are people who are coming to those ports of entry and, and hoping to qualify for these parole programs. So they're coming legally.
6: Uh, they are entering without they approach the border with the CBP one appointment and then they're inspected and enter legally into the United States if they are screened and deemed appropriate to do so. We've seen, for example, in 2023 fiscal year, almost 430,000 migrants who approach the U.S. Mexico border to try to receive through these appointments an opportunity to enter the United States. Having this migrant center is not, again, not just an important um, benefit for migrants because they get to enter uh, legally and then have parole to then be able to work more quickly into the United States, Mm -hmm. but also that it gives a expected flow of how migrants are entering to border communities. And many more of those communities are able to think in advance and nonprofit organizations are able to help with their services. And so it's a win-win scenario when we can think about how migrants can arrive into the United States using lawful pathways.
1: Right. But there are issues with that, right? And it seems like it, it's almost just in terms of, of staffing of capacity.
6: Yes. In the end, perhaps what is most needed in our outdated immigration enforcement system at the border is increasing significantly the volume of capacity across all agencies. Most of the time, what we see in the media is focused on Border Patrol because they are the first agency that encounters migrants and rescues migrants from the river or the desert. But USCIS here plays a significant role in how migration actually happens at the border. One of the biggest things that migrants do differently today than before is that migrants turn themselves in, many of the migrants turn themselves in to border patrol agents and then begin to seek asylum in the United States. But Mm -hmm. to do so, they have to be interviewed by USCIS if there's not enough USCIS officers to interview them then many more have to be attained for longer periods of time and then of course immigrations and customs enforcement then has to figure out how to remove if they can remove migrants to their country if they do not pass those uh, screenings but the bottom line is is not just border patrol it's USCIS and it's ICE as well. They have to be well staffed and resourced.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that is very different than the narrative, right, that the border is open and, and being flooded, right? But the other thing that you've pointed out here in, in this report I- in terms of major shifts happening in migration patterns is is a big increase and a continuing increase in families coming in, specifically coming, it sounds like, to Arizona. Can you tell us why?
6: Right. So it's a, it's it's been an important phenomenon at the border that more families across all sectors have been increasingly arriving to his Mexico border. But in the case of Arizona, it stands out because we've seen a significant increase in Mexican families, not just families in general, but Mexican mm. families that are coming to the Tucson sector. But let me be very clear about yeah. this. Even when families come into the United States, they're not necessarily able to stay in the United States. Many of them In fact, most of them who come between ports of entry, if they're Mexican, will have to go through the removal process and will have to wait until the court hearing to be able to determine whether they can stay or not.
1: Hmm. There also seems to be a role that the cartels are playing here, right, in terms of routing people to where it sounds like they know border officials are the most overwhelmed
6: yes and and that's one of the perhaps the biggest innovations in how smog networks have worked in the last several years. Mm. They have been so detailed in understanding how capacity limitations across on the u s mexico on the u s side of the border has changed and therefore target and take advantage of sectors that tend to be more isolated or that tend to have lower staffing compared to other sectors in the past. So, for example, Arizona sectors have tended to be the smaller sectors across the border and have tended to be some of the most isolated in certain parts where migrants are crossing. In this case, smugglers know that if they can increase the flow of migrants arriving at a particular port in Arizona, that that port is going to then be overwhelmed and that more of those migrants are either going to be detained for longer time and removed, or many of those migrants are then have to be processed and released with a notice to appear in immigration court, perhaps years down the line.
1: All right. Ariel Ruiz Soto joining us, Senior Policy Analyst with the Migration Policy Institute. Ariel, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time and explaining this to us. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Earmarks are back. Once upon a political time, they were maligned as wasteful and cast aside by former Arizona Senators John McCain and Jeff Flake. But now they're just a great way to steer federal dollars to local projects. And the fruits are starting to appear across the country. Here in Arizona, Democratic representatives are bringing home the proverbial bacon, but not most Republicans, at least not yet. Arizona Daily Star columnist Tim Stellar broke it all down, and he's on the line now to tell us more. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. So let's start with who is at the top of this earmark list here in Arizona. Who's bringing home most of the cash here?
4: Well, Senator Mark Kelly was the one who got the most funding approved in fiscal years 22 and 23, $43 million almost. That's that's uh, money brought home to local projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those two years, uh, Representative Ann Kirkpatrick, who is no longer in office, but represented Southeastern Arizona, she uh, brought in almost $25 million those two years. So they were the top two. And then... Uh, Uh, Representative Raul Grijalva and uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema rounded out the list of four who actually did bring in uh, the new earmarks.
1: Yeah, the new kinds of earmarks. And we'll get into what that means in just a moment. But tell us first, like, what kinds of projects are we talking about here? Like, some of these are really sort of small things that you wouldn't think of.
4: Yeah, I mentioned in the column that I went and attended a... Uh, a sort of celebration of a $1.2 million drainage project uh, near Tucson International Airport. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really humble little thing where they uh, are going to improve the drainage so it no longer, the, the water flowing off the airport no longer uh, causes flooding in these uh, two neighborhoods to the, to the west. And uh, Raul Grijalva had a, a little celebration of it. There were a few cameras there, uh, quite a few dignitaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's a, it's relatively small potatoes in terms of um, funding. $1.2 million is nothing in the federal budget. But, right. uh, you know, he's, he had a couple of these celebrations uh, over the winter break.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting because they tend to be these sort of small things that maybe can make a big difference, though. Like a storm drainage doesn't sound super sexy, but it's it's important.
4: Sure, yeah, uh, some of these arguably aren't important, important uh I mean uh, you know uh, for example, the other one that Raul Rihalva celebrated was uh a half million dollars toward renovation of the Tucson Indian Center, you know, you could say it's important, you could say it's not, but it's it's a local half-million-dollar renovation, and he brought home that bacon as well.
1: Yeah. So what about Republican representatives in Arizona? You mentioned all Democrats there. Why are most of them not requesting these kind of new earmarks for their districts yet?
4: Well, you can probably guess it. Uh, the, the one who responded to me and explained why was Representative Paul Gosar's uh, spokesman. And uh, yeah, he said that it was because of concern over spending mm-hmm. that uh, Until federal spending gets under control, Representative Gosar is not going to be engaging in earmarking. Hmm. Um, And that is true, it appears, of the vast majority of the preceding members of Congress. There's a couple new ones, uh, Juan Siskamani and Eli Crane. Crane, there's, I find no evidence of him requesting earmarks. Siscomani, on the other hand, is uh, participating. He just hasn't gotten any funded yet because he's too new.
1: OK, OK. So this kind of brings us to some of the history here of earmarks in Congress. It kind of started with Arizona Senators John McCain and Jeff Flake, as I mentioned, who, who kind of led the cause to get rid of earmarks maybe 10, 15 years ago. Tell us why
4: yeah there was uh while well, there many times were good um, causes for funding these local projects uh, there were many examples also of wasteful spending the most infamous is the bridge to nowhere which was to get 220 million dollars to go from uh, the land to an island in Alaska where 50 people live and there was a the Ketchikan airport was there.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: And that was such an outrage that eventually it was scratched, the whole The whole plan. They resumed ferry service instead. Uh, but also it was literally a way to uh, get bring in bribes uh, or mm-hmm. kickbacks. Um, Randall Duke Cunningham, the representative from San Diego, also became infamous. He was convicted of taking $2.4 million worth of kickbacks. And the way he got it was by inserting funding into uh, earmarks, into classified defense budgets where no one could really get a sense of what was going on. And and then the people who received that funding gave him $2.4 million in money back.
1: Interesting. Okay, so a lot of history there, but we got rid of earmarks. Did we also get rid of federal funding for local projects? Like, did that stop?
4: Yeah, what the the experts on this tell me is that no, uh, basically, instead of uh, the representatives directing where the elected representatives directing where the money goes, it was uh, the same accounts were still being funded in the various appropriation budgets, but they were it was the executive branch, the administration that was um, deciding where these these monies would go. And so, you know, some of the people I talk to say, hey, it's better this way because at least the representatives have local knowledge. They can vet these things and Mm -hmm. um, then they can submit them to the appropriations committees for for funding if you get that chance to be funded.
1: Right. So what happened in recent years that brought earmarks back? Like, why are we seeing these again?
4: Well, they were eliminated in 2011 under the uh, Tea Party Congress. Uh, They were brought back in 2021 under the new Democratic Congress. And the good news is that a lot of limitations were put on, among other things. All the um, members of Congress who request earmarks have to post everything they request on their websites. Also, uh, there's significant transparency within the Appropriations Committee. There's no more hiding uh, an earmark. There's also limitations on how much you can ask for and on how much of the federal budget that uh, earmarks can constitute, uh, no more than one half of one percent in one chamber's case or no more than one percent in the other chamber's case. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's much less uh, exposed to the possibility of abuse and corruption as it stands now.
1: All right. We'll leave it there. That is Arizona Daily Star columnist Tim Stellar breaking it all down. We got through that whole segment without a joke about pork. Thank you, Tim. <laughs>
4: <laughs> bring home the bacon All
1: right.
4: good
0: morning it's the show on kjzz 91.5 i'm mark brody
1: and i'm lauren gilger when most of us think of rastafari we probably think of bob marley jamaica dreadlocks But for our next guest, who grew up in a strict Rastafari home, it means something very different. Sophia Sinclair is a professor of English and creative writing at ASU, and her new memoir, How to Say Babylon, documents her childhood as a Rastafari girl and why she left it behind as a teenager. It's been met with critical acclaim and popular success, and when I got the chance to speak with her more about it, we began with more about what it really means to be Rastafari. She told me the Rastafari movement began in the early 1930s in Jamaica out of an anti-colonial desire to be free. At the time, Jamaica was still under British colonial rule. And a street preacher there heard one of the final speeches of Jamaican activist Marcus Garvey.
5: That said, look to Africa for the crowning of a black king, he shall be the redeemer. And this was around the same time that Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie was being coronated. Mm-hmm. Um, and Haile Selassie was the only black leader in the world at the time. And Ethiopia was the only African nation to never be colonized. And so he said, this is the man, like this is him. And so the movement of Rasafari, you know, was rooted in this aspirational idea of black unification and black liberation.
1: Many of the tenets of the religion sprang from there.
5: A lot of them include this idea of of purity and righteousness rooted in these principles of your body being a temple Mm -hmm. for Jah, which is what they call Haile Selassie. Um, And so that involves, you know, eating a very like highly restrictive diet. It's like, you know, a vegan diet, but even, you know, even more restrictive, Mm. you know, it's no meat, no dairy, no eggs, no fish, no sugar, no salt, no spices, you know. And the idea is that your body is a temple for Jah. Um, Of course, wearing of the dreadlocks is a big part of it. Um, But it's not just a hairstyle for the Rastafari. For them, it's a marker of your sacred devotion to Rastafari. And also a signal to the outside world of your purity, of your righteousness. For the women, there were some rules also that did not exist for men. And so for, for the women and the girls, we had to also dress a specific kind of way, you know, cover our arms and our knees, wear no adornments, no jewelry, no makeup. You know, nothing that was seen as 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 vain or the trappings of Babylon, which is what the Rastafari call anything that is of the outside world, anything that's seen as evil or anything mm-hmm. of a capitalist society rooted in Western ideology, they call Babylon.
1: That's so interesting. So you grew up in a Rastafari family, and I think a lot of people associate Rastafari and, and Jamaica, but but in fact, like, and I didn't realize this until I read your book, but like, it's actually a minority, right? Yes. The Rastafari
5: are historically a persecuted minority in Jamaica. I mean, when the movement began in the 30s, as I said, we were still under colonial rule with Britain. And the British government really targeted the Rastafari. They There was a commune. Thousands of, of Rastafari lived um, peacefully. And they called it, the British government called it a cult, and they sent the army to burn it to the ground. Mm. And that kind of scattered the movement. In the 1960s, we then had a prime minister who gave a directive to the army who said, bring me all Rastas dead or alive. And this led to a brutal weekend of terror in Jamaica where all Rasta brethren were pulled out of their homes. They were forcibly jailed. They were tortured. Their dreadlocks were forcibly cut. Their beards were forcibly shaved. And this led the Rastafari to becoming even more, I think, paranoid about this idea of the outside world of Babylon out to get them. And it's led to you know isolation, hmm. but the Rastafar in Jamaica are less a one percent or less of the Jamaican population. One percent or less, and wow. yeah, and so when when I was growing up, my siblings and I were also kind of used to being oddities. Like we were the mm-hmm. only Rasta children in school. We were the only Rasta children at the beachside. Like wherever we went, we were. Teased, pointed at, we were questioned, Mm. we were like curiosities in Jamaica, which is something I think most people don't realize because they think of Rastafari as the thing that defines Jamaica, Yeah, um, when actually, historically, and even in more modern times, it was not so.
1: That's fascinating because, yeah, I mean, you think of Bob Marley, right? Like, that's what most people will think of. Okay, so let's talk about <laughs> yes. what this meant in your life, right? Like, let's talk about your childhood, your upbringing. You you kind of beautifully describe growing up in sort of a, a small house by the seaside as a kid and being really happy. When did you start to realize that you were oddities, as you said? Like, was this something you knew from a young age?
5: No, it wasn't something I knew. I mean, I, I was born by the sea. I lived in this village which belonged to my mother's father and grandfather, you know, this community of fishermen. And this was, even now when I think about home and I think about even writing anything, it begins there with the sea um, and the rhythm of, of of the waves behind it. Uh-huh. So I had this really you know, happy and, and beautiful childhood, I knew my parents were kind of different than everybody else because they were the only ones around who had dreadlocks. They were the only ones who, you know, spoke the name Highly Selassie in reverence.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, but for me, I had just a normal Jamaican childhood by the sea. Um, and it wasn't until I began to get older, you know, around eight or nine years old, that I felt... Most acutely, the differences of being Rastafari. Mm -hmm. Um, And that came from how my teachers treated me and how my friends and peers treated me at school, Um, you know, which was not very kind. And that's when I began to feel like, feel the burden of what it meant to walk the path of Rastafari.
1: I want to ask about the transition, right? Because, I mean, the book is about, you know, your childhood and growing up this way, but also about your path to leaving, right? Cutting your dreadlocks is a big moment here. Don't tell us the entire story and give away the entire book here, but give us a (laughs) sense of what led there for you.
5: I won't spoil my life, but (laughs) I'll say that it was... (laughs) No, you know, I began to question a lot of the rules that were different for me than they were for my brother you know, which which was rooted in my gender, my femininity. And um, I remember there was a day, you know, my siblings and I were always wild children. We would always run around in the yard and play, climb trees, do all of that stuff. And I remember there was one day I was nine years old. My father called me to him and he said, how tall are you now? Mm. And I was above his shoulders. And he said, you're not climbing trees anymore. That's over. Rasta girls don't do that. And you're not wearing pants anymore or shorts. That's over. And my mother, he asked my mother to throw out all the the pants and shorts in the house, which she did. And he said, from now on, all my daughters will will wear only skirts and dresses. None of my girls are going to dress like Jezebels. Wow. And I really began to question at that point, you know, well, what was wrong with me? Simply because I was a girl and this only you know, deepened as I grew older and I became a teenager and I there was a moment where I began to just look into the future that my father was paving for me. Mm. I said, Who is the woman that he wants me to become? And, you know, I saw this young Rasta woman who, you know, was dressed the way he wanted me to dress who was silent and obedient and pliant, which I was always told was a woman's highest virtue, Hmm. who was a woman who had no dreams, no desires, no art, had no value except to be in the kitchen or to be the bearer of children for a Rasta man. And I said, that's not me. I don't want this future. And I was determined to cut that woman and her future away from me entirely. And that's when I decided to cut my dreadlocks and to leave all of that life behind.
1: And you became a writer, a poet first. And now you've written this book, which has been so widely received. Can you talk a little bit before I let you go about the process of writing this? I know your, your father has read this. You have sort of reconciled, at least it sounds like in some ways, with your family and your mother went with you, right? Talk, talk a little bit about where you are now. Yes.
5: You know, my sisters and my mother, they also all cut their dreadlocks and kind of left Rastafari behind, which mm. is not unusual. All the girls and women I knew growing up in Rastafari also cut their dreadlocks and rejected Rastafari. Oh, wow. Um, Yes. But, you know, I I think even though it would seem that my world would have been so narrow and restrictive, it was my mother who made it feel expansive because she gave me and my siblings her love of literature love of language. You know, she would have us writing poems, memorizing and reciting poems, writing songs. And so I always felt from a young age that writing was a place where I could truly be myself, where I could nurture my voice and nurture a vision of who I wanted to be to author my own future. And it began there on the page. So, you know, I published my first poem when I was 16 in the National Mm -hmm. Newspaper in Jamaica. And I've been writing and and honing my poetry and and my writing from then. So, you know, what my mother gave me was a true gift. And it really, I believe, changed the trajectory of my life. And so even though there were moments where writing the book was quite hard, um, to relive some of the memories and making sure I got it all right, to make sure I was as truthful as I could be about what happened, and to also present everybody with grace and with love, you know, it was difficult. But When I began to write the book, my hope was that I could turn all of that struggle and strife and pain into something better Into I could change the shape of the future in the writing of the past in hopes that it could be something beautiful.
1: That was my conversation with the author of the new memoir, How to Say Babylon, Sophia Sinclair. She's also a professor of English and creative writing at ASU. For more on her book, head to our website, theshow.kjzz.org.
0: And that'll do it for this Tuesday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Reminder, you can always follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. Have a good rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here tomorrow.
1: That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.